Welcome to Pastor Follow-Up. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And we haven't done this in a while, so my apologies for that. But today we're back at it, and hopefully the recording will go well, and my kid and somebody else's kid are down the hall, and they won't scream too much, and we'll just knock this mess out. Today, you noticed that we ha- don't have any guests. Um, what happened to Scott? Tear. I don't know. He's packing. He's my intern, Scott Oglesby. Great guy. Hope that some of you have gotten a chance to meet him. Uh, this is his last day, so he's packing up and headed back to Divinity School. So yeah, the exciting thing during the summer when the interns roll in from Duke Divinity School is you know we get to meet new people and all that, and then at the end of the summer it's sad because we have to say goodbye. So we had two great ones. We have several good ones, but two really good ones in, that I interacted with were Scott Oglesby and Morgan Dines, who we can now officially say is a friend of the show. That's right. We've had her on the show. And Scott offered to uh, to tune in via Zoom at some point, so maybe we'll get him on the on the show. We should. He's, yeah. he's a, he brings a unique flavor to everything. Yeah. Enthusiasm. So, just to like It's his spiritual gift. Yes. And yeah. He's got it in spades, so... Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that to make fun of him. I'm kind of jealous. I'm on on the other hand, so even keel sometimes that it's very boring to listen to me. Yeah. Or at least judging by the eyelids that I see during my sermons. Sunday mornings, it's not bad. <laughs> it's surely you're exciting. It's just that they all had a very big busy Saturday. Yeah, people are tired. All and, of them. And I don't time. shame. I don't shame or or disparage people for sleeping in church. I've yeah. taken many naps in the sanctuary. It's a great place to take a nap. Yeah, not in my sanctuary. Um, not because I'm <laughs> not in my sanctuary. Yeah, because it's too well lit. You're not going to get a nap in there. All right, so we have decided to talk about the Luke pericope in today's periscope selection. Periscope yeah. <laughs> in today's lectionary selection. And um, do we want to do any stuff? No, let's read it and get to it. Jump right into yeah. it. Yeah. We did meet about this yesterday, and I did go to the meeting and heard some of the discussion, but I will be really oversharingly honest. I didn't pay much attention because I had other things on my mind. We also, like, didn't have much time to talk about it. We, I, we kind of, I kind of hammered out some of the good, the, the points, you know, the, the main points here, but we only had about 15 minutes to talk about this, so I'm interested to see what we get into today. Okay, Luke 13, 10 through 17 says, this is the NRSV, not UE. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, and lead it away to give it water. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, 
whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day. When he said this, all his opponents when he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. And that is the story of Jesus healing the bent over crippled woman on the Sabbath from Luke thirteen ten through seventeen. It seems like Jesus almost intentionally chooses to heal people on the Sabbath. You're gonna have to probably Well at go least further. at least from what we have in the gospels that are given to us, the stories of Jesus healing uh, I think predominantly happen on the Sabbath. So is there do you think there's something else behind that? I have a, a hunch. I have, I have a hunch too. One one hunch, one possible thing is that he's just trying to twist the knife a little bit. Like he's doing it's it's dramatization. Like he's doing this intentionally because it's going to shake people up. It's going to it's going to get people to um, feel uncomfortable and maybe that will help them remember something or learn something. So that's a hunch that is based on the assumption that most of the healings do in fact happen happen on the Sabbath. Mm. See, my hunch is about why that assumption may be. Mm. And my hunch is, and, and I'm, I'm painting Jesus the way I want to see Jesus, so I'm going to admit that at Go the ahead. outset. So I have assumptions too. Go my ahead. hunch is I, I that he for... was doing this all the time. Like this is mm. just a snapshot that we get of Jesus's just desire to heal and bring healing and help and goodness to the world, I, I hope. And so I, I kind of lay those hopes on him. And so in my mind, he's healing all the time, not just on the Sabbath. Yeah. So why do we hear so much about the Sabbath? Because that's what makes news. Mm. That's what causes controversy. And that's nothing new. And that's news, memorable. The, 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 the stuff that gets the press mm-hmm. is the controversial stuff. Yeah. If he heals on Monday through Friday, well, I guess on Sunday through Friday, who cares? Mm-hmm. That's not a story. It's Jesus. Jesus heals all the time. We're used to seeing Jesus heal. But when he does it on the Sabbath, that's when we start writing. Mm-hmm. Or that's what we remember to later write about. Yeah. Or... We don't necessarily even remember the healing so much. We know that he healed, but we sure remember when he had the the heated discussion about healing on the Sabbath. And and again, there's a lot of me putting my assumptions about Jesus in there. Yeah, but be that as it may, we have these stories predominantly of stories of Jesus healing on the Sabbath because it was noteworthy and controversial. So why don't we talk about why it was controversial? Let's do that. Why do you think it was controversial? Well, I'm going to start with an anecdote. Okay. So when I got on an elevator, and it wasn't the first time I noticed it, but I, the one I remember is in the King David Hotel in Bethlehem or wherever it is. Mm. The it was a, it was it was on Saturday. The Sabbath. It was on the Sabbath, and all the buttons were lit up. They, they were the lights were on the backlit elevator buttons. Mm-hmm. And you stopped at every single floor. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because... Pushing the button. If you push the button and it causes an electric circuit to close, that makes a spark. And one of the definitions of work is something that could cause a fire. 
Hmm. For real. Like, that's why you can't cook. Uh. And oh, that was another thing. I can't stand, like, cold meat. Like, M- making fire is, is work. Yes. Okay. Interesting. But, like, because they can't cook, because then you have to use a heat source, which could make a fire. You might have to put it out. All the food was made the day before. So, like, you go to a buffet, and it's, like, cold fish. Nah. Nah. So like, you waited for... Bagels that day, homie. You waited for Sunday. Untoasted for... bagels and yogurt. Anyway. For buffet so day. the elevator stops at every floor. Why? Because... It's not just that you're not supposed to work. It's we're going to do everything in our power to make sure you cannot work. Yeah, yeah. So institutionally, because, you know, it's not really a theocracy in Israel now, but it kind of is set up to be one. Well, you were in the old city too, right? Or near? No, no, we were outside of Jerusalem. We had to go in every day. It wasn't that hard, but, I mean, it was like, you know, five minute drive but anyway a hotel called king david hotel though yes but it's the city of david yeah not the capital it's not like his the castle he lived in or whatever he lived in gotcha um anyway so what was i said okay so that that's what we've done yeah to the sabbath right but that's what they've done and that's what it seems like has been going on for a long time hmm. it's not just you can't be made to work is that we're going to remove all chances that you may even accidentally yeah, work. Temptations to work. And I'd love to see that in this in our culture. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Take a break. Perish the thought. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, so all that to say that this is this attitude is alive and well. Yeah. That the Sabbath is Lord over us. And so I can see. Can you imagine the uproar if someone was to get in there and be like, "Well, I'm tired of, of stopping at every floor, and I'm just gonna go get on my computer and do some kind of virus that changes all the elevators." Mm-hmm. Okay, that's gonna cause a stink. Yeah. Right, because you're now allowing people to break this societal norm, and that's essentially what Jesus is doing. He is publicly and in a in a in a manner that. It, why didn't he heal this woman just before she got to the synagogue where no one would have saw, mm-hmm. you know? And so so in a way that causes a stink, yeah. he is violating societal norms. Yeah. His argument, which I guess we'll get into, is yeah. that no, he's not breaking the law as it was intended, the right. spirit of the law. Mm. But he is violating their understanding of how the law should be observed. Right. Yeah, the the commentary I read called this uh, called it moralizing um, moralizing the the story of creation, the in- interpreting creation basically. You know, God created the Sabbath and rested on that day. Therefore, um, it is absolutely necessary that we stop doing what we can do, but but what uh, stop doing work. On the Sabbath, but what Jesus is demonstrating is that the Sabbath is created f- to give rest, and uh, by not healing this woman who's in bondage uh, to Satan, bent over for 18 years, that's actually a violation of the Sabbath. If you have the power to heal someone and to uh, relieve them and give them rest, 
then you should do it, especially on the Sabbath. In fact, that's part of the work of the Sabbath is to give rest to people who uh, are in need of it. Whereas I think the narrow interpretation that he's confronting is that I have the power to rest, so I will rest and I will punish or shun other people who um, would would need me to do any kind of work, mm-hmm. like healing work for them. It's interesting, though, that, that uh, Jesus is not confronted by yeah. this. yeah this story so um, i don't know if that what you think about that when but. i was reading it is just now while i was reading it out loud for our listeners to hear is the first time it dawned on me the person to whom the synagogue leader is speaking well the people mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and the it, woman presumably yeah in the crowd yeah it, it says speaking to the crowd not to jesus but and yet jesus answered him so was jesus in the crowd and also is he speaking to the crowd like lecturing them or is he speaking about Jesus lecturing Jesus but not caring if Jesus hears him or not mm. just saying it for like like we see like virtue virtue signaling essentially that we see so often on whatever news channel you watch pick one they all do it um, where they're speaking to their audience that they know feels a certain way mm-hmm. it's silo mindset yeah, yeah. It says indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, "There are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath." As if like Jesus, fault for asking. as if Jesus is is his employee, and he he needs to tell the people like, "Don't come." Like Jesus can't control himself; he can't help himself. He's going to heal no matter what. Uh, but don't come on the on on the Sabbath to be healed. So see, he sees Jesus the same way I do. He's doing it all the time. He can't help it. I'm not, I'm Jesus. There's no off switch. I'm yeah. Heal. I don't know if yeah. he just feels like there's just no there's no hope. He's not going to convince Jesus to stop healing on the Sabbath or what. But yeah, it, it's kind of a in, in a way it's kind of victim blaming. Like right, it's like it, it, instead of a, uh, accusing. Jesus of violating the Sabbath directly, mm-hmm. he accuses the people. The accusation was certainly there. It yeah. was implied. Well, and so this is uh, this is actually, I think, really important for Jesus's response, this, this accusation, because he brings up Satan in his response, and Satan's name actually means accuser. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus responds to him saying, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water, which was a authorized uh, action on the Sabbath according to the law. So he knows the minutia of the law and he uses this uh, in his defense. Then should not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, and not an animal, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her. And so he's using Satan and he's turning it back on them by saying, um, the accuser has kept her bound for 18 long years and here you are accusing her. So alternate reading, your accusations have kept her. Yeah, and your accusations are, are, are functioning at, you know, satanically basically to keep this woman in bondage mm-hmm. you're not you're not on the side of the god of liberation you're on the side of satan in this case 
I'm trying to think. Was it Fletcher who developed? I mean, they've already they've always existed, but he wrote about situational ethics. Mm. What does the most good in this situation? Mm-hmm. It's not deontological where it's either black or white, wrong, right, yes, no, hot, you're cold. Yeah. Anyway, Katy Perry. So it, it's not that. It's, well, there's a gray area, and, and we live in that gray area. Mm-hmm. And in that gray, gray area, we have to make decisions. Yeah. What does the most good? Mm-hmm. And in, in this way, Jesus is overlaying that onto the Sabbath laws. But instead of saying what does the most good, he's essentially saying what can bring the most rest yeah, and the most restoration. Rest. Yeah. Um, a, a modern day example, we have a baby and Christy has to do much more than I do because mm-hmm. she is the bringer of food for that baby. Mm-hmm. And so I during the school year, which will start next week, but for the first couple months of Ezra's life, his brother was going to school. And so I would take Ezra with me to drop off Gideon at school. And then in the hour and a half between dropping off at school and me having to come to work, when you have a baby, you need something from the grocery store like every day. Because two things. Number one, you just need stuff. And number two, you're constantly in a hurry and scatterbrained and forgetting things. So there's always something that we need. So I would pretty much every day, Drop Gideon off to school and then take Ezra with me to food line. Mm-hmm. And the people in the food line just swoon, you know, in the cash registers. and the, and the One of the hardest working people I've ever seen. I don't know her name, and I feel bad about that. She works at food line, and she works her butt off. But anyway, she does, like, stocking and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so you, you kind of get to know them because babies draw attention. And I was checking out one day, and one of the people who was a frequent visitor to food line not an employee, was just like, oh, he's here with that baby all the time. He's just the best dad ever. Oh, best dad ever. And I'm, hold on. And I said, no, I'm not the best dad ever. It's an hour and a half every day before I drop him off with a mother who is working and also taking care of him while I go to work where I don't hear the screams and Mm. change the diapers and all that stuff. Yeah. It would seem like to her perspective, I'm doing all this work. But in reality, I'm doing a simple thing for me to do that can bring someone else rest. Mm-hmm. That is what I see Jesus doing here. Mm-hmm. Now, healing may not be a simple thing for some, yeah. but for him it is. Yeah, And it, at least it seems to be in this story. And in fact, all he did was make a statement. Yeah, and I think situational. It's important to acknowledge, like the, the the as you said, situational ethics here. Because one question I have is like, well, if God has the power to heal people, why did He wait eighteen years uh, to heal this woman? Could have just snapped the fingers, right? But yeah. this is a situation which we encounter God in flesh in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is attuned to the needs of the people in the in the place where Jesus is mm-hmm. and so it's very it, it very well may be the case that that this woman deserved to be healed a long time ago but Jesus is in the same space as her right now 
and it happens to be the Sabbath, but that doesn't change the fact that this is the God of who who frees people from bondage and who liberates and who gives rest. And so he's going to do that right now, right mm-hmm. here, because he has the opportunity to. Well, I don't know that we're really talking about it, but I appreciate you bringing it up, whether on purpose or not. And I think it should be said that the God of the Bible is always the God of now, mm-hmm. whenever now is. Yeah. And I don't think that's changed. Yeah. So I think we, we tend to focus too much on what God has done. Or hasn't done. And, and look ahead to what God might do that hasn't been done yet. Or should do. And we, we pretend that God's just not here now. Mm. God was, and God will be, but God's not right now. Mm. When that's the opposite of the God that the Bible presents. Exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's hard to acknowledge, you know, the presence of God here right now. But uh, as soon as we start to, to meditate on that and to pray and to take time for rest, which is exactly what the Sabbath is about, mm-hmm. uh, that's when we, I believe, that's when we actually uh, do better at acknowledging God's presence. And so if, as someone who has a hard time resting, mm-hmm. uh, I, this, is a, this is a teaching moment for me to, take, to slow down, to take time to rest and to recognize the presence of God. And maybe through that, acknowledge the work that I can do to be part of providing rest for other people even if it is on my quote-unquote rest day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the day. Mm-hmm. Sabbath. So this is on Sunday, right? Huh. Well, the Christians worship on Sunday yes. because Jesus was resurrected on Easter morning. On so you're saying Sabbath did not change? Uh, no. It, it did not. Yeah. In fact, the word Saturday comes from Sabaton, yeah, right? Even even more so in uh, Spanish, Sabado. Sabado. You're almost saying Sabbath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah. So uh, intern Scott Oglesby was wondering why we worship on Sunday, and his first guess was, ah, so that the pastors don't have to work on the Sabbath. <laughs> Which would be great if that were true, except that we're teaching on Sunday and Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath, and apparently that doesn't count as work. So no. sorry. So so actually, we don't actually tell you, maybe, ever work. Maybe not for you. <laughs> I, I know that it's simple for you. You make everything look so easy. Sundays are work for me. They are yeah. work. They're work for I me too. I come home exhausted. I usually have to take a nap on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it's because you don't have a baby. <laughs> Just have that baby take a nap right on your chest while you're taking a nap. That's that's you my heard, idea. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's when I find the nap button. I'll hit it. Yeah. What can what can we say, say more about this? Oh, there's plenty. Let, uh, let me look at it and we'll dig into it. So verse 13 says, uh, "Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God." Oh, I think you should read 12, too. Okay. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. All right. What do you have to say about this part? Well, I think that that 12 is incredibly important. You don't, obviously you don't have 13 without 12, because that's the way numbers work, but also because the, the authority with which he said it. He didn't say woman hopefully we got it done this time Mm. it was just so matter of fact 
that it's almost scary. Mm-hmm. If I'm there, mm-hmm. and apparently the synagogue guy's seen it before, and he's like, "Whoa, there goes Jesus again." So he's used to it. But if I'm there and I hear that statement, I'm like, "Who is this guy?" It, imagine if I go to the doctor's office because I well, I'll just use my aunt as an example. My aunt Cheryl, she's been coughing for like 30 years constantly. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. She doesn't know why. Has she had COVID for 30 years? She, uh, yes, she's <laughs> probably patient not. zero. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so if I was to go up to her, if someone, sorry, if I was there and, I, and someone said to her, Cheryl, woman, you are healed. I'd be like, what? Been calling for 30 years. What are you talking about? You are healed. Mm. Okay. 13s immediately shows the validity of 12's authority in Jesus' voice. He said very, very matter-of-factly, not, I'm going to heal you, not, let's see if this works, not, I'll pray on it, hmm. but in he, in this, in this, I imagine it passionate way, certainly compassionate, but I feel like passionate way, a, a powerful statement that we have overcome this ailment. Mm-hmm. Whoever we is. Yeah. And then immediately, 13. Yeah. She straightens up. Why? To show that, yes, indeed, you are. Mm. So I, I love the faith involved there. I love the confidence involved there. And I love them because I suck at them. Huh. Just as a pastor. Yeah. Well, and, and we, we are, uh, I, I personally feel... Um, I think I feel a lack of confidence to declare healing over mm-hmm. people because I, you know, I'm not sure at the end of the day that I have that power. Yeah. I mean, I, I I really believe I don't that God has that power, but I I just don't. It, it's a it's a it's a faith struggle for me to to believe that that's that that instantaneous kind of healing is possible. What I think is really important about this passage and the words that he says is that he says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Mm-hmm. And to me, that connection with freedom is really important because he, he's identifying the infirmity as a kind of bondage. Yeah. Whereas in his day, people who were sick, especially with chronic illness, they were considered to have a moral failing of some kind. And so not only is he healing her, he's also declaring to all of those who hear and Christians uh, who meditate on this scripture for generations will, 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 will read into this correctly that to be sick is not to have a moral failing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was revolutionary because uh, this, is, this is the reason why people were shunned from communities for being lepers. This is the reason why people were uh, ignored on the Sabbath day because of their ailments, because they were considered to be unclean or unworthy of healing, that they must have done something wrong. And he is, he is making a statement that this is about freedom and bondage, mm-hmm. that infirmities are something that are holding humans back from what God desires for them. And he is here to set that right and to free people, set people free. Uh, and, and I think that's a lesson that we're still trying to learn today. I mean, there's so many, quote-unquote, infirmities that we talk about today that, uh, that people can s- still consider to be uh, connected to moral failings. 
uh, and we need to and we need to get rid of that notion. Well, let's just take a few examples. Uh, Katrina comes, and Pat Robertson says it's because. New Orleans is so, so such a sinful city. Oh yeah, I had a gentleman call me up right when the the COVID pandemic started and when it was mostly just in New York. Oh yeah. And asked me, "You think that this is because, you know, they have too many gay people in New York?" Yeah, because apparently that's a prerequisite for being in New York. So we still make this mistake of considering calamity to be associated with moral failing, and well, Jesus doesn't punishment. do that. Yeah. It, it, I think it has more to do with the speaker's view of God. Mm-hmm. And when he, when I'm just going back to the Pat Robertson example, when he said that so publicly, I don't like pay attention to him. Mm. But because he makes all these like predictions or whatever prophecies he calls them and they're never right. So I'm like, okay, people are going to see through this at some point and they don't. But anyway, um, but I happened to be watching the news about Katrina because it was a huge dadgum hurricane Mm -hmm. and then immediately to use Luke's word uh, here he is making that statement and I just remember thinking I don't know what God you serve Mm -hmm. but it ain't mine Mm -hmm. and I wonder how many other people made that connection Mm -hmm. now I'm I'm sure a lot of people made the connection that oh we gotta send this guy money and that's probably why he makes those kind of statements but um what does it say about us, about our faith in God or our view of God, when we cast our assumptions about how the spiritual world works upon others, mm-hmm. especially when doing so leaves them in a worse situation than they would be if we just see it differently? Like we could bring hope if we would just be willing to change the way we view things yeah i mean i guess we i guess we think god's just as petty as we are right that's what I it seems most like of us do. yeah um and, and and i think jesus is demonstrating that actually god's not that way and i think here's the good news for judgmental people like ourselves uh we don't have to be that way either yeah Jesus, the good news here is that Jesus is showing us a different way to be human. So you're saying that by following Jesus' example, we can be set free from our, the bondage? Yes, and this is where this passage gets really, really cool. And so I want to share with you something. It hasn't been cool yet. It hasn't been cool yet, but, well, it has been cool. It has been cool, I don't. but here's where this thing is. I'm going to flip it on its head here, okay? So... Uh, one thing that I read as I was preparing for lectionary group yesterday was about this word hypocrites that Jesus uses to accuse those people who are um, re- refraining from setting this woman free and who are um, upset that Jesus is doing it. He says in verse 15, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Okay, so this word hypocrites uh, is relatively uncommon in the New Testament. It mostly is used only in the Gospels. And we're in Luke, but it's used a lot more in Matthew. 
And if you look in the Old Testament, it's rarely used there too, but one place where it is used that is important for us to note is in the book of Job, which is a story about someone who's suffering. And we have in the book of Job this uh, youngest quote-unquote friend of Job, Elihu, come to talk to him about, uh, about you know, his views on what God does to righteous people versus people who are uh, sinful or whatever. Wrongious. Wrongious. And this is what... Uh, this is what he says. Elihu addressing Job explains that God, and this is in Job 36 verses 5 through 12, that God listens to the righteous who are afflicted, but the godless in heart, which the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the of the Old Testament, translates hypocrites. Godless is translated hypocrites. So the godless in heart hold on to their anger and do not cry for help when they are bound. Okay, so we would first, if we didn't read the second half of that statement, we would think, okay, God listens to righteous people, but God doesn't listen to unrighteous people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we were to translate that into the story, we would see the same kind of interpretation that the synagogue leader has, that this woman yes. does not need to be healed on the Sabbath because she must not be righteous because if she was, that God would have already healed her. Yes. Okay, but the second part of this is really important. Elihu says, but the godless in heart, or this, or these hypocrites, hold on to their anger and do not cry for help when they are bound, or literally when he binds them, meaning when God binds them. So here's what I'm getting from this statement and considering who's saying it. Mm-hmm. A stop clock is right twice a day. Okay, go ahead. Because you don't usually take your theological wisdom from Job's friends. Correct. <laughs> Correct. But this use of the word hypocrites, I think the commentator was saying is maybe an intentional use by Jesus to refer back to that story. Perhaps. As he's speaking to these the synagogue leaders, he's saying, you are actually the hypocrites. You are the godless in heart because you're holding on to your anger and not crying out for help when you yourselves are actually bound. Yeah. And so instead of it being just the woman who needs freedom and rest, he is trying to proclaim that it is also people who don't think there's anything wrong with them Mm -hmm. who are in need of healing and liberation and rest. And he's coming to bring healing and liberation and rest to them too. And that's something we see all the time. Mm. Because you can be functioning very well by society standards and completely shattered um inside yeah uh and you can hide it for a long time yes and and i'm not even talking about necessarily on a religious or spiritual level Mm. robin williams Mm. he was functioning depressed for so long and then everyone's shocked but he's so funny how could he do that yeah well and and there's a lot of people like that yes and 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 we we are masters of deception right and so there you go and in in our churches you know, in my church in particular, you know, I see people who are just holding on to anger and resentment and they're they're doing so because they feel like they're following God's commandments. They they feel like they are right. They feel like they are doing the right thing, they're living righteously, and these other people who are living lives that they don't agree with, uh, are getting too easy of a pass very much like the psalmist says a lot Mm. 
And so they're holding on to this anger. And, and Jesus in this story is trying to point out to them, you hypocrites, like <clears throat> you are you are bound by this. Like, don't you see that that anger is bending you over, that it's locking you in on, on yourself? And, and a, I think it was uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, who, who, who used this Latin term, homo curvatus in se human curved in on himself that is what sin is when mm -hmm. we curved in on ourselves and so he's talking about a spiritual bended bendedness or bent overness that he sees in these people who are holding on to their anger and being judgmental when god is right there willing to offer them healing if they would just be willing to stand up and praise god so how do we uh, we can't provide the healing but how do we offer a way out of this well in our world yeah well um how for, do we invite our listeners yeah out of their inward curvature self-bounding hypocritical stance and we're just as afflicted by it as you are by the way yes well, that's why verse 13 is so important to me, because it says that immediately uh, she, she straightened up and praised God. So to, we got to give them more than just saying, hey, straighten up. Yes. Okay. The praise is really important and part of it, I think. For, hun for 100 years, and this is another thought I'm borrowing, for 100 years, psychoanalysts have been trying to straighten people up without praise you know and, and we can heal someone temporarily mm -hmm. we can get them on medication for the rest of their life and keep them you know relatively functional but uh, I think that this scripture is telling us that for for lasting healing to happen we have to acknowledge God's power and we have to praise God and that's what she does I mean you, you think about that scripture um, from John chapter 3 uh, where it says, just as Jesus was, or just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus was sent among us, I believe, to be the person that once we straighten up and look, that poison of needing to judge other people is drawn out of us. And we see that God is actually, um, is actually trying to heal us if we would just look and praise God and just say thank you and just share our gratitude. I, I want to point out that in in this statement that the praise part is very important, it does not lessen the value of mental health. Correct. Because okay? there are people that say you don't need psychology, you just go to God. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what you were saying at no. all. I do think that we sell ourselves short when we arrogantly say modern science replaces God. Mm. There's a middle ground. Yes. Where we use what we can from mod modern science. Yeah. And we still have room for the higher power. Yes. And and so you see you see this in in many world religions including Christianity but I think we're we're kind of like dragging our feet on it but when you reorient your life around gratitude, mm -hmm. uh, keeping a gratitude journal, what was I grateful for today, it really can change your life. And and that's what I see in this as a practical step. I mean, I think there's more to it than that. But in terms of, of healing, having gone through 
um, a, a really difficult season in my life this past year uh, with, with my wife having cancer and with the flood and you know we're on the one year anniversary of that now um, that it was a really hard season for me and and it's only now that I'm starting to get healing from it and I have to I have to like I have to make gratitude and praise a practice that I return to because that's how I continue to keep my focus on on the blessings that that God is that that God is daily uh, sharing with me and, and and pouring out over me. If I stay dwell dwelling on the past and everything that's gone wrong, um, I'm going to bend over again. I'm going to get curved back inward on myself. And, and so that focusing at turning up and looking at, at Christ, just like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, and looking at the way that God liberates us from the need to be right and the need to have, you know, and the need to follow the law to the letter, um, that helps me to heal from what has been uh, crippling me for so long. I think that these are very important spiritually and mentally healthy things to include in our lives and unfortunately we live in a market-driven world and the reason that we're lagging in this like you said versus other cultures is that in our world fear and power sell Mm -hmm. you want to grow your church make them scared of ideas that you don't agree with Mm -hmm. you want to fill up your offering plates talk about how powerful you can be Mm. um and you know marry some political party or whatever that is what we've done Mm. and i don't know of any church that hasn't to some degree done this Mm -hmm. and that sells Mm. and the more you do it theoretically the bigger you get but when you're selling poison, mm. I mean, we're in many ways, the church in America, I don't want to pay with too broad of a brush, but it's not like I can point out every example that's like this or not like this. But in many ways, the church of America is very much like a, a drug dealer. Mm. We, we don't care about the health of our clients. Mm. We just care that we get them hooked. Yeah. And, and keep them coming back. And, and, I think that's a problem because we do like this synagogue leader. We keep them bent over. Mm. We keep them in bondage mm. to their fear, to toxic theology, to quests for power, to mistaken ideas of who God is as long as it functions to help us, yeah. the church, or whatever, the, maybe even the pastor's ego, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And gratitude doesn't sell Mm. sacrifice doesn't sell um taking a risk like jesus did to heal on the sabbath that could cost you like it did and ultimately did doesn't sell Mm -hmm. and far too often i have been averse well maybe averse isn't the right word but hesitant Mm mm-hmm because I got to get paid because I have bills um, I got mouths to feed to to take the kind of risks that Jesus does 
Mm. and to love as big as he does in ways that challenge the systems and in ways that may push people beyond what's comfortable because after all we've been doing the Sabbath this way forever Mm. and who are you to come in here and upset the apple cart well I mean I think that this story shows us that even though uh, you know the fear of getting things wrong and the power that we can yield as uh, as faith leaders by trying to maintain order in our spaces and doing things the quote-unquote right way it still excludes people Mm -hmm. And, and I at my at my core believe that that true spiritual healing doesn't result in, with people going off on their own because they don't need church anymore. I believe that true spiritual healing, as we see for this woman, fills people with gratitude and makes them and, and brings more people in to a community that have been excluded for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, I think, yes, we are stuck in a religious marketplace in which we have competition. Thanks, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he was a deist. He didn't want the church to be supported by the state. Mm-hmm. And so he, he created a system in which we do have to compete. Um, but, uh, you know, what you're talking about, this sort of like, you know, get your weekly dose of, of God and just keep coming back, that's called therapeutic deism. Mm-hmm. He was a deist. I mean, it turns out that he created a system that worked for the kind of religion that he was practicing. But it might not work for true Christianity. And true Christianity, though, I still I fervently believe, uh, when we do practice truth and we when we when we do practice uh, bold boldness in setting people free, and, and and refraining from judgment, I believe it will lead into deeper community and deeper connection and deeper inter interdependence with with other people and not the opposite not everyone just going off because they've achieved healing I, I believe that gratitude practice actually draws us closer together rather than separating us so uh maybe it's time for you to start a gratitude journal or or to take time to think about the things that uh that that god is doing that are setting people free in your life and in, in the lives of people who you encounter on any day of the week, and how we can be a part of that liberating work. So DeAndre Ash, when he was on here, I asked him, how do you stay so positive? Mm. And he said, I just wake up and say thank you. Mm. And then the rest of the day, I figure out why. Mm. And so maybe that's how we need to start. Yeah. Keep ourselves straight up looking at the the cross and and. and, and with gratitude for what Christ has done, that we don't have to be the judges, we don't have to get it right all the time, uh, and, and we can be we can be liberated from that fear and that need to be in control. From Pastor Potluck, I'm Peter Constantian, and I'm Court Green, and I'm glad you joined us. Peace.